This week on Recruitment Flex, Shelly echoes Serge's favorite phrase. Serge was right. We talk about how internal referrals don't equate to high quality of higher scores. We also dissect a list of recruitment predictions for 2023 and SAP and Oracle put lipstick on a pig. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge. And as always, joined by Shelly Billinghurst. And Shelly, we were supposed to have nicknames for this show. I guess we'll save that when we record with Chad and Cheese next week, because you didn't like my nickname. I thought it was brilliant. I won't even share it. Oh my God, please don't. You seem to be stuck like a 14-year-old boy sometimes. I don't know. I will say though that Joel Cheeseman or Chad and Joel, when they're announcing the fantasy football, where the standings are, like where does he come up with all these nicknames? I have no idea. It's just like he rambles them off and you have a different nickname every week. I do. Depending on where you are in the standings. Yes. And I I lost this week, so I'm not going to make the playoffs. I was in first place for a little bit. I know. But I've been sinking ever since. At least I'm better than Jason Putnam. That's as good (laughs) as it gets right now. But aside from that, I'm not doing great. You remember last week, Serge, you and I had a pretty good conversation going about new Canadians struggling to find work when they first come to Canada. And I found an article on the CBC. So I'm going to start by saying this, Serge. I need to acknowledge that you were right. Oh, wow. Your point of view that job seekers that have foreign experience coming in to expect to land a role at the same level as where they left is not realistic. And it was supported by a CBC article where they were interviewing new Canadians. And quite frankly, he was very honest to say that when he first came to Canada, they were speaking to a job seeker. He came with this really impressive experience, a couple of master's degrees, like well-educated, 10 years of experience in banking in a foreign country. And they were talking about the importance of getting up to speed on Canadian business acumen, like business English, how to prepare for interviews and polish your resume to a Canadian style. And it was about this program in Nova Scotia where this is what they do. And here's what he said. He came, he prepared, he took these classes, prepared his resume. And after a couple of months, he realized I am not entitled to the same position that I used to have in my home country. And I need to start from scratch. That was a challenging time for me, but I accepted it. The point that you made, I just want to acknowledge that because I think maybe that point didn't come through too clearly in last week's episode. It's not that they can't get a job in banking here in Canada. They can But you can't expect your experience to translate 10 years, even a management role in a bank in the Middle East, to a Canadian bank. It is so different. Our banking systems, like everything is different. Doesn't dismiss your education, but I wanted to share that with you. Serge, I think the theme you were on was correct. Well, I appreciate that, Shelley. And I got to admit, I was really nervous after releasing that episode that my thoughts would come out as anti-immigration. And I'm completely the opposite. I think it has to be a big source 
of talent coming in the country where mm-hmm. I think we're lacking is giving the tools for them to be successful in a Canadian business environment. And we were talking about maybe two different things because the example that you use is very valid. If I'm working for a large multinational corporation, transferring over to a Canadian role would be less a lift that someone is coming in a completely different company. I know the industry might be very similar, right. but as yeah. you discussed here, the experience is different. How we do business is completely is. different. And the other challenge that he mentioned, and I think it's a challenge with a lot of countries that English is maybe not the first language. You can learn practical English, but when you actually use it in a business setting, there is quite a different, yeah. it's not the same. I come from a worker privilege and I give the example of moving across the country where maybe it's a little bit similar, even though it was in the same country as my first language was not English. When I moved to Calgary, where Calgary is very English focused, I had challenges initially of getting jobs. And basically I had to elevate my English and the best way you can do is practicing and using on a day-to-day basis. I now have the opposite problem where I can't speak French or I can, but it's a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. The other thing that you pointed out several times during our discussion was that we need to provide support and tools. And that's really the heart of this CBC article was that Nova Scotia has this fantastic program for newcomers. And I know the same programs are offered here in Calgary, pretty much every major city across Canada. It's making sure that new Canadians know where to go to get this business level English class because you can access them. There are things, it's just helping them connect to these programs. We're going to have here in Canada around half a million new immigrants a year. They are going to become a big part of our workforce. So the ability to give them the tools to be successful in the workforce here in Canada are absolutely critical. And I think that's something we all need to get behind. Agreed. On another note, uh, one of the things working in a job board world or talent acquisition, it's a question Mm -hmm. I get every year. Should we be posting jobs during December? You've been in this space for a long time as well. What's your thoughts? Should companies post or advertise jobs during December? Absolutely. The reality is sometimes you have more availability on a hiring manager's calendar if they're not on vacation. If your hiring manager is on vacation, don't bother. But if they're going to be around, there's actually a time where things do start to slow down. And it's easier for job seekers, if they're currently employed, to be able to take an hour or two off or leave early. There is a lot more latitude and grace. The other big thing is, usually in early December, Most companies have announced what pay increases are going to be or not be, performance bonuses, what they will be, and is it ever what you expected it to be, especially in companies that keep this as a locked up secret. Not in sales, because in sales, you know right down to the penny. (laughs) But when it comes to just purely discretionary bonuses or Christmas bonuses, you pretty much know whether or not the company's coming through on what has been traditionally accepted. Job seekers who are feeling like, hey, this isn't fair, they will start looking. They know they need to be there for their payout of their year-end bonus, but they start looking in December. Make no doubt about it. So if you don't have your job posted outside of what I said before, I think you could lose out 
on exceptional talent who wouldn't normally be looking. It's always event driven, right? So I think it's a good time to advertise. Yeah, really good points. And I agree with you overall that December is a really good time to post. There's a couple caveats. And the one that you mentioned is hiring managers. Are they going to be around? Because if you can't get them in front of interviews, getting through the process is going to slow everything down. But there's a couple of data points that are really critical here. One of them is job seeker levels of looking for jobs on major job boards don't really go down. It goes down a little bit, but not to the same ratio as how many job postings go down because a lot of people don't advertise in December. So now you are an advantage on major job boards if you're putting a job in December because there's less competition. You're actually getting more eyeballs to your jobs at a lower cost because of less competition Competition. on the major job boards like Indeed. That is one factor. The other thing is, I think you nailed it, is people start looking at new year, new me. They start thinking about that in December. They start looking at what opportunities are there right now. And well, if the hiring manager is not around, if you're not posting your jobs on major job boards, you should be putting your brand out there in front of job seekers in any way possible, because you want people to start thinking about your brand as they start aggressively applying for more jobs in January. And we know that the data in January for job seekers goes up pretty dramatically, but also companies are job seekers generally are aligned that, hey, it's a new year, new us or new me if you're a job Mm -hmm. seeker. So yes, if you have the ability, you should advertise your jobs and your brands in December. We want to move into the recruitment insights. Okay. And Shelly, when we were at HR Tech, we actually met with Crosscheck. So Crosscheck is a talent platform that really focuses on quality of hire, which is a hard metric to measure. We interviewed the CEO, but unfortunately, we had technical malfunction, so I haven't put it out. But it was a really interesting conversation with the CEO. And when I saw their latest report come out, I'm like, most companies release reports and it's kind of shit, right? There's very few that give you any meaningful data that you can leverage. When I read this report, I'm like, shit, this is really good stuff because it goes against the convention of a lot of our thinking. Everyone that I know working with tons of hiring managers and CEOs, they always think that referrals are the best source of quality of hire. And this report actually goes against that. And what they say here is internal referrals have a quality of hire 26% below the mean. Meaning referrals are giving you less quality of hires than if you, you think they are. Than you think they are. And <laughs> If you're leveraging job boards or anything else. A couple of things that they point out that might cause this. Some hiring teams typically demonstrate less scrutiny in the selection process when evaluating an internal referral than they do when evaluating an outside applicant. The other point is if you consider there's incentives for people to refer. And generally in most companies, we've seen it, different bonuses. And that can have an impact as well. So what's your first gut reaction to this? I was surprised that it's that much below the mean in quality of hire because the belief has always been that you're only going to refer people that you are going to put your name beside. However, and I've said this my entire career, what you just touched on, and that is when you add money in the mix, especially if those referral bonuses are like 500 bucks or more. As soon as you put money in the mix, it 
takes away from the logic behind you're only going to refer somebody you'd put your name beside. The other thing that they pointed out, which makes complete sense, is that when it's a referral, it's almost like you skip steps in your due diligence. You're assuming, well, because Surge referred this person, they've got to be the same quality as Surge. So they skip steps. Maybe they don't even bother interviewing. <laughs> they just go right to offer. They don't bother doing reference checks. What for? Surge referred this person. It really does stand to reason that a referral does not equal quality. And you know what? I've seen this firsthand. And it's been frustrating for me in a lot of cases working with hiring managers where they preferred candidates that I knew weren't as good as the other candidates I was putting forward because they were over-reliant. Joe said this person is really good, so I'm going to put him through the process. They feel there's less risk. And sometimes hiring managers worry about risk more than anything else because if it's a bad hire and they didn't go with the internal referral, it looks bad upon them. That's what the thought process is for a lot of hiring managers. It's been frustrating as a recruiter because you source a really good candidate and suddenly there's an internal referral and they're not even matching up. But that internal referral is always going to get consideration first. I don't always blame the person referring to the company because sometimes we have selective memory, right? It's like going back to dating reference. You sometimes remember only the good things about that relationship. I am so happy to see this data as hiring manager CEOs think we need to get more referrals any way as possible. And to your point, if you need to add money, generally you have a bad culture and you need to incent your people to refer to that company and then they don't give a fuck. I think that's a very valid point. Do you know one other thing? We talk about this so many times when suddenly your position was redundant and you're not working right now and they're pouring on the networking, right? Reaching out to anyone they've ever worked with in the past. And so tell me if somebody you worked with reaches out and says, I see that there's a job at your company, what are you going to do? They're like, well, yes, I'll refer you. Like, you're going to say no, no, I don't want to work with you again. Like, it's really awkward, right? And so that is why I think people end up referring someone they worked with in the past, not because they thought they were any good, but We all know, like when you're unemployed, everyone keeps saying network, network. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're any good. (laughs) No, I agree with that. The other thing, and I don't think this will be a surprise to you. Most interviewers are not very good at identifying top talent. Interviews show only 9% correlation rate to quality of hire. There was a couple of key data points that explains it. 76% of interviews conduct one interview per year. Per year. One. And (laughs) 87% of interviewers conduct less than three interviews per year. If we flip it around and look at people that have done 12 interviews or more, there is a much greater correlation between high interview scores and post-hire performance. Are you surprised that a lot of companies and a lot of people are bad at interviewing? And it's not a shot at anyone because if you're doing one to three interviews a year and you're not trained, of course, you're going to make bad decisions. What's your take? You'll get no argument from me here at all. In fact, I'm surprised that they said 12 interviews. That's one interview a month. You know, when I was hiring recruiters, 
and training recruiters, I would say you don't even know what you don't know until you've done at least 100 interviews. Yeah. 100 interviews. Then you become what I used to call consciously incompetent. Because at 100 interviews, you begin to realize, I really don't know a whole lot about what exactly this role is, what success looks like. And it's usually at that point that recruiters will start to say, oh, that's why we have to do an intake. After they've done 100 interviews, you know, to bring somebody in from the business and expect that they can go through a full-blown DAR interviews or behavioral descriptive, are you fucking kidding me? If you're not professionally trained in that, it is not only a horrible experience for the hiring manager, but it's what job seekers cringe. It's what everybody dreads. You haul this person in who does three interviews a year. And he has to read off a sheet of paper. Tell me the situation, task, action, and result. And they're so worried about asking the next question. They didn't listen to what the candidate said. No surprises here at all. You know, I realize more that I read these types of reports that the one big flaw that I had a talent acquisition manager or leading talent acquisition was I did not spend enough time in training my hiring managers on how to interview. If I ever get back into a talent acquisition role, that is one of the things that's going to be my primary focus because realizing how big an impact to your quality of hire by doing really good interviews and training your managers to do good interviews, to know the difference between good and bad. It's a critical role that we have in talent and acquisition. It should be one of the top priorities for anyone coming into a new organization or leading talent and acquisition. So do you believe that most talent acquisition leaders have taken a real hard look at their interview guides? Like it shocks me how many are still falling back to as if it's 1972 again, and we're using behavioral descriptive interviews. And they really never question why are we asking this and why have we chosen to use this methodology of interviewing? I think the failure here is really on TA leaders to put their experience and intelligence to work in building kick-ass interview guides that ask questions that are truly relevant to find out if this person wants to do this work and can do the work. I think a lot of talent acquisition leaders shy away with- I think they're lazy. They're lazy. I I, I don't think they're- No. I think they're lazy. It sounds like a hell of a lot of work to redesign your interview guides, but if you've got a 9% correlation to quality of interview, you should be fired if you're not reviewing your interview guides. I don't think that's a challenge. I think most talent acquisition leaders would love to redesign. I think the challenge is adoption and getting it across to all the hiring managers and training the hiring managers is where they get tons of pushback. And is that the battle that I want to take on? The answer should be yes. But the problem is I really do think there's so much pushback from hiring managers, meaning like, no, I've hired a ton of people. I know how to do this. And they have their pet questions and all that bullshit. I think that's where talent acquisition dropped the ball. However, if you have done a good intake, we don't post your job till we've done the intake because the intake is the anchor to the interview guide. You know exactly what to ask if you've done a good intake. So you should get 100% adoption because you just designed the interview questions based on the intake 
and based on the job advertisement. There's no adoption required if you've done your intake. You won't get an argument from me, but I think it's not as simple as that because adoption is a lot more challenging, especially with hiring managers, because they're going to do what they feel comfortable with. So they might go to your training, but they might not execute on it. You don't need to train them. They're asking the question. No, you need to train them. You absolutely need to train them because the questions don't give you anything. It's the answers you care about. Why are you asking this question and what answer are you expecting is the key. And hiring managers, they're not trained to do that. So we have to help them. I think you're making it too complicated. Oh my! I think hiring managers know how to ask. They lead people day in, day out to do this job. And doesn't mean they're good leaders. Okay. Okay. I would say most managers are bad at their job. I know that's an overgeneralization, but they're even worse at interviewing. Yeah. (laughs) I want to jump into the next one. So we've had discussions and you've said it many times that the resume is a flawed document, right? We see a lot of different companies that come in, hey, we're going to replace the resume with this pre-hire assessments. You don't even need a resume. You're going to get all the answers that you need from it. There might be exceptions, but very few of these pre-hire assessments are actually any good. One of the things in this quality of hire survey that came out is some popular pre-hire candidate assessment have an inverse correlation to quality of hire. They looked at 10 assessments, six out of 10 were not predictors of quality of hires. Most of them were actually an inverse of quality of hire, which I thought was fascinating because we see so many of these types of pre-hire assessment out there, and it's really tough to determine what's good or not. There's one that is very popular that they did not name. They found that 92% of candidates that scored in the top decimal of the assessment had a quality of hire in the lowest decimal. What was your thoughts around that? Do you agree with this? Although they didn't name names, there's an awfully strong hint there. And it's a cognitive assessment that has been in use for decades. So would companies still think that Myers-Briggs or DISC? DISC has been used since the 1970s. Yeah. And those are cognitive tests or personality tests. This does not surprise me at all. In fact, like you, I've always believed that pre-hire assessments are a dangerous weapon in the hands of the untrained because it becomes the reason not to move forward with somebody. You allow this assessment score to make the decision for you. I would stand up and applaud. Please stop using pre-employment assessments. I'm not saying don't ever use them, like skill assessments or specific technical assessments. I know you probably wanted to be the one to say this, so I'm going to say it. This is coming from Shelly's mouth this time and not Surge. When it comes to technical skills like coding, We're not asking every applicant to take a coding test, but if we are down to the offer stage, a technical assessment will tell us where we may need to shore up some of their skills. That would have a closer correlation to quality of hire. Yeah. You know, when when I was reading this, I thought of Boss in the Netherlands because he is such a big fan of pre-hire assessment and Mm -hmm. where they are in the process. And we've had that argument many times. So I know you're probably listening and I'd love to have a conversation (laughs) on this if you agree or disagree, but yeah, giving us data that's actually 
pretty in-depth and is going against a lot of bias or thoughts in the recruitment industry. I do recommend recruiters read this report because it had ton of great data, especially the one that really hit me was the referrals, because that's a battle that I've had for years. I'm not against referrals, but I think we've bent way too much over-indexing on referrals instead of other sources of hires. You know, Shelly, we're in the season of recaps and predictions for 2023, and there's a million articles out there. And We're Mm going to have a recap show of 2022 and probably we're going to have a prediction of 2023, but you found a really good article that gave a lot of predictions. And what I wanted to do was cherry pick some of them to see if you agree that this is actually going to happen. So the first one is the skills shortage will continue. Agree or disagree in 2023? To me, this is almost a no-brainer. Of course it will. Are people magically going to have the skills? Employers are demanding that you have all these skills, but where are you going to get them from? Education doesn't automatically equate to skills. It's a pretty safe prediction that the skill shortage will continue. Duh. Really? Okay. Well, I think the economy- That's going out on a limb. Yeah, exactly. I think the economy (laughs) is going to be challenged in 2023. There's a massive labor mismatch. And this is across every industry. This is happening in trades pretty dramatically as we're seeing boomers and the older generation X retire. And there's just not enough tradespeople coming in. So I agree. I think this is going to be the next 10 years. So not going out on a limb at all. The next one, sourcing across borders will become the norm. I saw a lot of that in 2021, even in 2022, especially in the tech industry. I predict this is actually going to go the other way, especially if you look at the tech sector where a lot of people have been laid off and generally people do prefer to hire in their own country. And it's not because there's a bias, but I think the cost difference is not as dramatic as it used to be. If we look at Deal and Oyster, basically they've been built for people mm-hmm. to be able to hire people in mm-hmm. different countries. They're struggling. And these were all unicorn companies at the start of the year where they got a billion dollar valuation, hired a ton of people, and suddenly they're laying off because this is slowing down dramatically. I think it's going to go the reverse way. A lot of people are going to become more localized in how they hire. What's your thoughts here? I so agree with you. Deal enabled us to be able to pay, you know, taxes in foreign countries and payroll. They solved that problem for us. What is not going to be solved is the way we do business, say here in Canada, and you're hiring people in, say, Chile, it won't solve how we speak to customers or the cultural differences and being able to properly onboard people. It sounds like a good idea because if you just look at the money part of it, like payroll, deals got it solved for you. But what it doesn't solve is the fact that onboarding these people and getting them to be part of your company's culture and how we do business, understanding local labor laws. I would point to the American firm that was hiring developers in the Netherlands and fired him for not having his camera on and he sued them and won 
because in the Netherlands, you can't fire somebody for not turning their camera on. I agree with you. It is not going to become the norm. In fact, it's going to go the other way. It's going to be like, what a colossal disaster, (laughs) thinking we're going to save money. And it ends up being like just a nightmare to try and manage. I'm going to do two more out of this. Okay. Okay. And one's very topical. We probably talked about this more than anything else on the recruitment flex is remote work will gain an even stronger foothold. I'll let you go first. What's your thoughts here? In 2023, are we just talking in the next 12 months? Next 12 months. No, I don't think so. I think that it'll stay steady, but I don't think it's going to gain a strong foothold. And the reason why is we have C-level executives who have made it very clear. We have seen the big boys reverse. When I say the big boys, I'm talking about Google and Microsoft and Meta and all those companies that were bold, getting out there and saying, we will never make you come back to work. Well, six months later, they're reversing that. As soon as they did it, it gives permission to all others. Yeah. It does. So I do not agree that remote work will gain a stronger foothold. I do not agree as well to exactly oh. to the points that you mentioned. C-levels are wanting people back in the office. And a couple of weeks ago, we read the survey. What's the most important thing that job seekers or employees are looking for is income stability or yeah. the ability to pay their bills. They are less likely to push back. Suddenly, six months from now, they're in the office full time and there's nothing they can do about it because they're quite concerned that there's not going to be the remote opportunities out there. The other flip side Mm -hmm. to it is there is so much competition for remote roles. We see it on LinkedIn where I think it's 20% of their roles are remote and it's getting 50% of the applications. It's going to get tougher to get a remote role. I do think in the long run, Remote is going to win out. I strongly think as different levels of executives come in where we have more millennials in the C-suite, I think we're going to see them change course, but we're still a couple of years from that really taking hold. So yes, I think it's going to go the opposite way where we're going to see a lot more people go back in the office. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. If you're worried about job security and you've not had a face-to-face meeting with your leader in six months... Guess who will most likely be the name on that spreadsheet of who we can potentially lay off? Because you know what? I haven't seen them in months. Doesn't mean your performance isn't good. That's not what it means. It means who's making the decision about whose name goes on the spreadsheet. Yes. It's Uh, 100% agree. Senior leadership. And they've not seen you in a while. Let's do number eight. Oh, that's exactly the one I was going to pick. Oh, good. (laughs) Yes. Diversity initiatives will grow. I'll leave it to you. Agree? Disagree? No, the fashionable thing to say is rah, rah, yes, they will. In fact, I think the opposite is going to happen. I think we saw a lot of very bold statements, big commitments. And what did we see? We saw nothing. We saw it become quietly swept away. We did not see organizations being more transparent about here's where we were and here's what we've done for gender, ethnicity, race, neurodiversity. They thought maybe it would come true if we hope hard enough. On the flip side, though, Serge, I would say in the next five years, we will see 
more diverse workforce because of pay transparency. It will not be because you have a DEI director or HR has a DEI program because that is all smoke and mirrors. Well, we're on the same page again. Okay. We've talked about this. We put data in front of the audience that showed the CEOs did not put their money where their mouth was. And then we saw a lot of layoffs this year, mostly in the tech sector. And if you go through those lists of those layoffs, it's the DEI director. Well, <laughs> just got laid off. Like almost oh, right? 100%, or they were transitioned into another role that whole role lost its teeth. A lot of companies just put it in the back burner because it's not as critical right now. It's going to be a tougher economy. And we have not done a really good job of showcasing why diversity is actually beneficial to the business. A diversity of talent, diversity of thought is great, but we have not been able to put an ROI behind it And when we look at layoffs lists or departments to cut, a lot of these layoffs have involved recruiters that work in diversity, equity, inclusion, and the DNI directors. I see it completely go the opposite. And we're going to see that as long as the economy is challenging. There was a total of, what, 10 predictions? And we agreed with one? I mean, we were cherry picking, but... The other ones were pretty, like... Pretty safe. Branding yeah, yeah, will be yeah. key. Not going out on a limb. Okay. Engagement okay. will be more critical. Project-based work will explode. I agree Ooh. with that one. Maybe Ooh. that one's a little bit different. But <laughs> anyways, let's jump into okay. our last recruitment insight. And this one, a lot of people that are in talent acquisition have to use these shitty HRIS that have the ATS function. So two dinosaurs mm-hmm. have come out with new features or new rebranding. And this one, oh, I I hate success factor. Just hate it with a passion. Why? 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 Have you what seen it? SAP? Yes, of course. But no, I want to hear why you have such a disdain for SAP or for well, success factor specifically. I have a lot of clients in the business that I'm in mm-hmm. that use success factor. The minimum amount of clicks that I've seen on success factors to be able to apply for a job is 160 clicks. Minimum. The database looks like it's from 1982. I've never seen a user oh, interface yeah, that yeah, looks yeah, so yeah. old that's not been updated. It's impossible to maneuver. It's impossible to train mm-hmm. the managers on it. They don't use, wants to it, use it, especially the talent acquisition module. They don't use it. So you're doing everything out of the side of the system. Yeah. Give me the key points. They are refreshing parts of success factors. What I do applaud is they have introduced a module. It's an investment in internal mobility where you take a look at professional interests of your existing employees. So this is talent management module. And I think it's fucking brilliant because what they're saying is you can reskill your own people. These are people that already understand your company, how you do business and how you make money as a company. If internal employees have an interest in being part of other parts of the business, you can reskill them and do these micro learnings within this module. This is actually really cool, but it's not talent acquisition. It's talent management. Thoughts? Uh, Yeah, great. The talent acquisition thing, the only thing they did on that side, they're going to make it look 
like from 2002. I'm hoping at least. I guess the value in this is that it's in the system that they already use, but still probably going to be shit. There's no way it's better than a third-party platform that has specialized in this. But again, we don't like to work in multiple systems. And then when you think about integrating a third-party software into success factor, I lose sleep even thinking about doing that mm-hmm. is probably the most strenuous exercise that you'll ever do in this space. But yeah, they're partnering with Coursera. So if your employer uses success factors, you can now have access to countless courses and learning opportunities. And because you're connected to success factors, you will have it as part of the ecosystem, which is great. Good. I think that's really smart. Good. I'm sure a lot of success factor users are really excited. Thrilled. Uh, they're getting into <laughs> the 2000s, right? Another giant beast that Mm -hmm. has renamed itself Oracle Recruiting Cloud, but let's not fool ourselves. It's Taleo. It's Taleo. It's Taleo, but a little Mm -hmm. fancier, better graphics, a better user Mm -hmm. interface than Mm -hmm. Taleo, but still shit. I've used Oracle Recruiting Cloud and I would not recommend it to my worst enemy as an ATS. But here is what they did. They have launched a new set of recruiting tools One of them is the ability to help company run events for high volume hiring, such as college campus or seasonal retail. And the other thing they release as a new feature is a two-way messaging function for text and email candidates so they can send it directly through the system. They've always been able to send it through the system, but now they can get replies, which I'm like, okay. What is this, 1998? I know you didn't believe me when I told you about this. You were like, no way. Seriously, previously, recruiters could send a message to candidates, but not receive them back through the recruiting system. Which is absolutely crazy because that is one of- Can you believe that? Yeah, it's one of the top features that I look at in an ATS because- I want to know all the communication Mm. across the board. So I'm taking on a role, someone's on vacation, or I want to go back. I'm not looking through people's emails. It's all in the system. And we want recruiters to be as efficient as possible. In the minute that you're going from email to a system, then you're leveraging another system that's not into the main system you use every day. It's not very efficient. I guess, congratulations, Oracle (laughs) Recruiting Cloud. (laughs) I'm really curious on their hiring events. They now have a platform that you can manage large-scale hiring events. What's your thoughts here? I really doubt it. I guess I'd have to read more because all it was really saying is that you can now learn about the event. How would you learn about the event unless you had already subscribed? This is great if you are actively managing your ATS to be marketing back to job seekers, but we know they don't. So how would you learn about the event? Oh, that means you have to advertise your event. Oh, where are we going to advertise our event? And then apply for the job and interact with the recruiter all on the same platform. Yeah, this is... Well, this is why what Indeed has is brilliant, right? Because they have the platform to manage those events mm-hmm. and it works well, right? Managing the events, it's not a major tech undertaking itself. The challenge with these events is 
for people to show up at the events. And that's where someone like Indeed, who has a massive advertising network, mm-hmm. 90% of the challenge with hiring events is getting people there. Just managing events, which is what this is doing from everything I could read. Okay, it's nice. It's not a bad feature to have, but you're only solving 10% of the problem. I don't think this is a virtual tool either. This is like a QR code so that when you go to the in-person campus event, rather than saying you have to apply for this job, they'll give you a QR code. That's what I think it is. I don't think it's automation at all. You're still never solving the problem of why students have such a rotten first experience with you at these hiring events because they're like, oh, apply online. Why did I come to the event? Yeah, and the QR code is so easy to generate. I guess they're trying to keep up to date of what's going on, but they're still very far behind. Both of these systems, when it comes to the ATS part, they're horrible. I still recommend to anyone that is serious about being a leader in talent acquisition to have a platform like Smart Recruiters, Greenhouse, Lever, like the list goes on and on. Not the shitty HRS that finance and HR has chosen for you. That's all I have, Shelly. Okay. Okay. Well, that was a lot. Thank you. That was fun. We got some exciting episodes coming up. You have to go listen to Jan. I thought the interview was great. The amount of information that he gave us on the experience of job seekers and how recruiters can help them was fantastic. We've got Chad and Cheese coming on the show to do a recap before the end of the year. And next week, we have the CHRO at Employ, who owns Jobvite, Jazz HR. Lever. There's one more that I'm forgetting. So that's going to be an exciting episode. Thank you for listening. And Shelly, have a great week. Thank you. Talk soon. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing Business Bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.